Well, let's take a moment and thank the band, if we could. Um, Christian, thank you for leading us. Man, I feel like I need you to, like, follow me around uh, just throughout my day, just kind of telling me, like, hey, you need to worship right now. I love the way you just did that. That was great, man. Um, for those of you who don't know me right now, there might be a few of you who are like, who the heck is on the stage? Um, I'm Nathan McKnight. I'm our pastoral resident for the summer. I'm working with Pastor Misai, who, in my opinion, has the greatest job in the world. He gets to shepherd this flock and uh, be around you. So I'm so excited to be here um, and be with you. And I want to thank you guys for your convictions, and I want to thank you for your commitment to meet in this place, to meet in the house of God. That's a big deal. That we get to do this. And let's not take advantage of that. This is a big moment. We get to meet in the house of God. But more than that, and my prayer for you today, is that we don't just simply meet in the house of God, but that we meet the God of this house. Amen? I'll say that again. Not only do we want to meet in the house of God, but we want to meet the God of this house. So if I can do one thing today, that's my challenge. That's where we're going to start. That's where we're going to finish this message, is meeting the God of this house. And we're going to do that through the reading of his word, and through understanding this idea of submit. What does it mean to submit? Um, I said meme on purpose. I was not going to say meme, but I decided to go for it. Um, and so if you've been coming the past couple weeks, you know that Misai um, took us through a passage that talks about submitting to the government. And what does that look like? And the difficulty of submitting to outside of authorities. And what does it look like for us to do that? And, and then not only do we keep it in the outside world, but what does it look like to submit in the home? And we had multiple different husband and wives come in and teach us what it looks like to submit to your spouse or your future spouse. And then last week, Misai gave a, an amazing example of the nature of submission and that it's active and it requires humility. And today, we're going to talk about the practicality of submission. What is submission? What does it look like to do that? And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love if you turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, and as we go there, I just want to kind of give an understanding of what it is that we've decided as a church submission means. The main idea of this whole series, what is it? It's that submission is when I submit my will to, does anyone know it? You know it. So when I submit my will to your will so that we will glorify God together. Right? So we will walk together. That's the goal of this is that we walk together. Um, so in 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read um, from 13 all the way to 22, all the way to the end of the chapter. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love if you'd stand and read the word with me today as we honor God and his commitment to us. So chapter 3, verse 13 starts, and it says this, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be in dread, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just and the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamations to the spirits in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the, the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of God for good conscience." 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is the word of God. Whew, that is a mouthful. Just, I mean, man, I was, that's the hardest part of preaching a sermon, is reading the whole passage word for word. I, that is not my gift. I, I need like a, like a professional reader to just stand here, and I can give him the mic for a second. Um, man, yeah, you get that. Um, well, here's the deal, guys. What is submission, and what do we see from this passage that submission is as we look into this? And I'm going to start like this. Point number one, we're going to go right into it. What is submission? Submission must come first. Okay? This passage starts out in verse 13. What does it say? It says, and those who will harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. It doesn't say, hey, when people don't harm you, then you should do good stuff, right? No, it says, who's going to harm you? It's implying that we should be doing the good things first. Submission isn't an act of gratitude. It's an act of obedience. Submission must come first in our lives. You know, I think so often we think of submission and we think of kind of dipping our toe in the water and kind of seeing, well, okay, God, if I, if I submit to you just a little bit, are you going to reward me? And if you do, maybe, maybe then I'll submit even more, you know? Maybe I'll start, I'll submit a few things in my home life, and if that goes well, I'll submit my work life, and if that goes well, I'll submit my whole life. And that's not what we see. That's not what this passage sows. It's very clear. Submission comes first. It's the act of obedience. And from that, the blessing may come. But it doesn't guarantee the blessing. That's the, that's the tricky part, isn't it? We may not be blessed. Peter continues later. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be an encouragement. If I was reading this as a persecuted church, I'd be like, oh, man. You mean I might do good things and still suffer? And Peter says, yes, yeah, you might. Submission comes first. You see, submission can't be a product of our success because that puts the glory on us. Submission can't be a product of what we do in our own lives because that puts the glory on us. You see, it's when we submit to the will of the Father, regardless of circumstance, that's how the Father is glorified. People see that and they go, whoa, what's going on there? Submission must come first. Not only this, we see, continuing this idea of what comes first, we see that we're supposed to do these good things because that's what God desires of us. It says right here, it says, who will harm you? And then it continues, and it says, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be in dread. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ. He says, okay, this needs to come first. And he just continues this passage, and he says, and that's just because that's what God wants you to do. I think too often we want some answer for why God wants us to do stuff. Too often we need the full picture and this isn't one of those passages. This isn't a full picture passage. Peter's saying, you need to submit. You need to do good. And who's going to harm you if you do? Although the context of this passage, we know Nero was staking Christians as light posts. And that's who Peter's preaching to, writing to. But he says, you know, I mean, if you're doing good, they're going to see that. They won't want to harm you. But he's not guaranteeing that for them. And yet he's still saying, you have to press on. You have to continue in the good works. Peter, Peter follows this up, and this is, this is the kind of the, the part that steps on my toes, is that he says, there's no room for fear when we follow Jesus. This idea of submitting, this idea of submitting to God is a fearless act. Now, dipping your toe in the water for God, that's not a fearless act. That's a selfish act. That's a cowardly act. It's one I do all too many times. 
I'm not a bionic believer. I'm one step away from stupid every single day of my life. You can laugh, but you don't have to. Um, Definitely no amens on that. But I'm not a bionic believer. I fail at this all the time. But yet Peter makes it abundantly clear here that there's no room for fear. Submission is a full step approach. And, you know, I think oftentimes we get that full step approach and then we say, okay, God, I submitted to you. Now, where's the blessing or where's the next step? What do I do? And God's like, no, you just do it again. Take the next step. Submit again. Okay, God, now, surely, surely the promotion's coming. Surely, you know, surely everything's going to be okay. No. Take the next step again. Submit again. And dive headfirst in again. Submission has to come first. Continuing in this passage, and I'm going to be a brief preacher today. Can we all get an amen on that? I'm going to, I'm going to fly through this stuff, so... I think we can all agree that that's a good thing. So continuing on, point number two, submission not only must come first, but submission takes preparation. We must prepare, and we see this. Continuing on, it says, Do not fear their intimidation, do not be in dread, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And here's the new part. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. I think too often we're not ready. I think too often we want to we wanna wait. We want our pastors to be ready. That way when we bring someone to church, they can do the rest, right? We want our friends and family to be ready, but are we ready? Always be ready. Submission takes preparation. You know, sometimes... When people write sermons, they come up with catchy titles, and it doesn't really make sense to say them, and sometimes it does, and I actually think this is one that it does apply, is um, this idea of, I'm calling this message self-defense class, right? Self-defense class, and then in parentheses it says, die to, die to self-defense class, right? I thought that was clever, but the idea is, we're going to learn today, if we follow what he says, to defend our faith, and that's a form of submission to God, to be prepared, to give a defense for the hope that's in you. But I have to be honest with you, I worry about Peter when he writes this to the culture of his day, I think he got to assume that these people were showing the hope, right? These are people who are following Jesus if it means death. These are people getting crucified on crosses just to be able to proclaim the name of the Lord as Christ, not Nero, the Lord. And so Peter makes an assumption here in this verse. He says, hey, when they see your hope, They'll ask you questions, and then you need to be ready to give a defense. But I wonder if he wrote this to us, would he not say, hey, you got to live where they'll see your hope? Are they seeing our hope, guys? Oh, man, that stepped on my toes. We have to live a life where they notice, right? John 13, 35, they will know you by your love. What do they know us by? Our political views? What do they know us by? Our aquarium? You know, do they know us by a group of people that just stay together? Are we an ocean? Are we going out to others? What do they know us by? Do they know us as a multi-generational body of people that come together to serve a common goal, regardless of circumstance? Or do they know us as a group of people that they seem kind of judgy? And I'm not discrediting sin. I understand that we have to make a stand and praise God for it. It's led to some amazing things even just in our own country just even the past couple days with the abolishment of Roe v. Wade, that's an incredible victory for Christians. I'm not saying we don't take a stand, but I'm saying 
People shouldn't know Christians by our stance on Roe v. Wade. They should know us by our stance on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Are we prepared? Are they going to know? More than that, we're meant to do good. That's all we're meant to do. Verse 17, it says it very clear. It says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. He could have put a period right there and we still have to follow it. But he says, he gives us a little bit. He says, well, I mean, it's still better than, you know, suffering for doing what's wrong. But we have, no, we have no choice in the matter. We are called to do what's right. We're called to love. We're called to be prepared to give an answer for our hope. Oh, man. My toes got stepped on. This kind of brings me to a, an example of this in my own life. Like I said, I'm not a bionic believer. I'm one step away from stupid at all times. And I hope you guys realize that we all are. But I'll speak for myself. The past couple weeks, I got the chance to go with Pastor Misael to the Southern Baptist Convention. Right, so we had to fly there, um, and it was an incredible experience. Um, I'm a college student, so I only have one suitcase right now, right? And it's just a little bit too big to be a carry-on. It's just a little bit too big. I mean, it's just, I didn't realize when I bought it, I thought it'd be fine. It's just a little bit too big to be a carry-on. But it's way too small to, like, use if you're going on some long trip and you can pack everything you want. Like, it's, it's the worst size suitcase I could have ever bought in my life. I do not know why I did it. And it was super overpriced, too. Um, but anyways, we're coming back from California after this amazing week where we got to meet so many cool pastors and experience the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, and we're going through the line at LAX. And, you know, there's a lady at the TSA. That's the Transportation Security Association. And she's, I think that's the acronym. That might not actually be the acronym. Don't, don't quote me on that. But there's a lady, and her whole job is to see if your bag is the right size to get on this plane or if you need to check it. And so I, I'm, I'm aware that she's probably going to see mine, so I kind of, you know, I was able to sneak it on in Tulsa, so I was kind of holding it close to me, and, you know, me says right here, I'm trying to use him as like a shield where they don't see my bag. Um, but she stops me. She tells me, Sai, to keep going. She's like, you got to keep going. You know, LAX is crazy busy, and she stops me, and she says, you need to go. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So now I'm frustrated, so I get out of line to go to the checked bag area, and as I'm walking that way, I realize that the checked bag is in a different terminal on a different floor, and it's going to take forever, and I just, I get so mad, and um, I see this, this lady who's got a badge on it, says head of security, and I was like, bingo, so I walked straight up to her, and kind of gave her a piece of my mind, I'm ashamed to say at church, I wish I wouldn't have, but I kind of was like, listen, it's barely too big, I don't have the money to be checking a bag right now, I don't want to have to do this, I'm in a hurry, I was with a group of people, I want to stay with them as I fly back, blah, 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 all this stuff, and I'm super frustrated, and she looks at me, and she says, sir, I was in the middle of talking with this lady. When I'm done with her problem, I'll get to yours. I have to go speak to my boss about what she asked me about. And I'm sitting there like, okay, you know, still frustrated. So she walks off, and here's, here's this woman, this sweet woman right next to me, and she says, what were you flying for? <sighs> Everything in me wanted to tell her I was like a professional surfer or something. You know, like just totally go off. I bit the bullet. I said, well, um, I'm coming back from the Southern Baptist Convention, and already her eyes started to gloss. You know, she's kind of like, are you kidding me? And then I said, and I'm a, I'm a pastoral resident for a church. I'm, I'm learning to serve in ministry. And the look she gave me, I mean, it would it, you would have thought she was my grandmother who was about to smack me upside the head for eating my birthday cake too soon. It was bad, you know. And she looked at me like, oh, you know. And I, I realized in that moment, what am I doing? Getting so frustrated about such a small thing. So I realized, you know, the, the head of security comes back, and to make a long story short, she actually helps me out. And so I apologize. I said, listen, I shouldn't have acted that way. I'm actually coming back from the Southern Baptist Convention, but more than that, I'm a Christian, and I shouldn't treat you like that. I'm sorry. 
She's, you know, she really didn't care, and she says, go on your way, and I meet back up with Misai, and that's where I tell him, hey, the head of security helped me out. Um, but I tell that story because that's a perfect example of me not displaying the hope in Christ at all, and of something so minute, something, checking a bag. I think they would have done it for free. Checking a bag, that was enough to set me over the edge, and yet Peter is writing to this group of believers saying, you got to have hope in Christ, and you better be ready to show that at all times when they're getting put in gladiatorial arenas and slayed by lions for sport. And I can't even go through LAX on a busy, you know, Saturday without feeling overwhelmed and decided to, you know, change my perspective on God for a moment. I mean, what is that, people? But do we not all do that all the time? Are we not all living in such a way that we struggle we're not all living in such a way that we fail to submit to God, not only first, but then in a way that we know because we're being watched. Do we not fail to do that all the time? Submission takes preparation. Not only does it take our priority in being first, not only does it take preparation, but there's something else it takes. And this is kind of the weird part of this This. The section of scripture, you know, as I was reading this, I was kind of like, what, what is Peter doing? Why does he insert all this weird language about Jesus going down into the depths and preaching to people who died in the flood? Like, Peter, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you writing that? It seems so out of place here. I'm reading this, and I'm confused. And then I'm supposed to preach this to you guys, and I didn't understand. I'm like, what am I, I'm, I'm waiting for that moment where Peter tells us these things. He tells us, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this, and then he gives us the or else. You know, I'm waiting for that or else. Peter, when are you going to put the hammer down on these believers and tell us that we have to do this or else? But he doesn't do that. God doesn't, God doesn't do that. There's no or else here. The next section of these verses is about God. There's no, you need to do this and you need to do this, and if you don't, here's what's going to happen to you. It says, hey, you should do these things, but guess what? You're not going to be able to. This next section, although it seems rather confusing, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't say Christ died for those who are going to submit to him perfectly. No, once and for all. No, God waited patiently for us. It continues on. Furthermore, it says it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's putting all the weight of salvation on Jesus. No, there's no... There's no or else here. God doesn't work in or else. He inserts a little comma, and then it says, but God sent Christ to die for our sins once for all, the righteous and the unrighteous, to bring you to him. He was put to death by the body and made alive in the spirit. There's no or else. And I have, a trouble, I have trouble wrestling with that. I have trouble, God, why, why would you use us? God, I'm, I'm 20 years old and I already feel like I have a lifetime of sin. God, why, would, why do you say this? I'm, I'm trying to submit first, but I never do it. I always fail. I can't even get through the airport, God. God says, I know. It's okay. That's why Jesus did it. I know. I know you're struggling. That's okay. You know, before, before I was preaching the sermon, I, I go to Oakland Baptist University, and, and it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm studying theology. So when we read a passage like this, you know, the, the theology antennas kind of spike up a little bit, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what does this whole passage mean? And I, and I went through all these commentaries in the Greek and all this stuff to try and figure out, you know, did Jesus, you know, 
go to descend to hell to preach to these people or not, because, you know, there's all sorts of different opinions on that. And I would actually challenge you guys to, to study that for yourselves and not be bionic believers. Study that. But, but it was in that wrestling and in that me trying to figure out what to say, I realized this whole passage is simply saying you got to tether yourself to God. You've got to hold tight because it's all on him. And he holds tight right back. And that's the beauty. Before we go into a time of confession, before we go into a time of the Lord's Supper, I'd like, us, I'd like to go through a story with you guys that I think illustrates this very well. On the screen behind me is a man named Chris Nikich. He's in the orange with his hands up in the air. Right next to him is a man named Dan, Dan Idridge. And maybe you don't know the story of this man. Chris was born with Down syndrome and, and several other health disabilities and, and was basically told that he couldn't do anything. Um, that he would die by the time he was 30. He'd probably be in a wheelchair by the time he's 25. And there's certainly no way he could use his hands or his muscles effectively because his body not only has Down syndrome, but he has a disease that makes his mind-muscle connection almost non-existent. Chris had been told that his whole life, that he decided he wasn't going to stay there. He started working so hard to learn things. He learned the guitar and the piano and musical things. He learned how to read and write. He learned how to do not just simple tasks, but abundantly more difficult tasks. He learned how to do things that they never would have thought, like tie his shoes. But Chris wanted to continue that journey. Chris didn't want to stop there. He decided that he wanted to do something physically challenging more than just mentally challenging. So he said, I want to run an Ironman triathlon. For those of you who don't know, that's four miles swimming already. It's like, ooh. Four miles swimming, 112 miles biking, and then a marathon running. And Chris decided he was going to do this. Now, Chris is a determined guy. He had learned a lot in his life. And Chris decided that he was going to do this on his own, and he began to train for it, only to fail time and time again. You see, Chris had actually reached his limit. In his own book, 1% Better, he talks about this. He says, I reached my own personal limit. Chris's story is not a story about what he can do on his own. It's a story of what he can do when he comes together and tethers himself. So Chris reached out to this man, Dan, who's a professional triathlon runner, and said, I want to run a triathlon. I want to do this. I want to do an Ironman triathlon. And Dan thought this was a great idea. Dan said, let's do it. So they began to train together. If you can see it, tethering themselves together. So when Chris swims, he wouldn't get lost in the water. When he'd fall off his bike because his legs, the muscle connection would fail for a second because he has to stay constantly focused to do even something like riding a bike, Dan would be there to pick him back up and get him on the bike and start it for him again. And the, in this beautiful picture, Chris actually, this is when he finished his first Ironman triathlon. He's now done 15 in this amazing photo, Chris had just fallen down, only for Dan to pick him up over his shoulder and begin the process of dragging him towards the finish line until Chris got close enough the last mile where he said, I can do it, to which Dan dropped him, and they ran the last bit like that. Now, Chris's story is similar to this passage, in my opinion. Chris had been told to do all these things, and it wasn't until he realized, I can't do this alone. And he literally, what a beautiful picture of the gospel, tethered himself to another person and said, I can't do it alone. 
I can't do it. But you can. You help me. Every single one of us in this room are called to do the exact same thing daily. To die to ourselves, Luke 9, 23. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. I can't do it alone. God, I will not be able to do this. I have no chance. But I can tether myself to you. And when I fall, you can pick me up. You can carry me to the finish line. It's in this time that I I challenge you guys. Are we tethering ourselves? Or are we more just kind of holding hands? You see, that's part of the story too. When they started out, they hadn't figured out this tether system yet. And so their first time swimming in the open water in the uh, canal between Florida and um, I think it's like Georgia. The first time Chris got super lost because they were going on this holding hands method where Dan would just kind of touch his hand every about five minutes, but that that ended up not working, you know, because Chris was only able to get a hold of Dan once he was in trouble, and by then it was too late. Dan would still come and rescue him, but that was not going to be the way to success. They realized they had to tether each other to each other. That way, Chris wouldn't begin to ask for help once the problem had started, but before the problem had ever been started, Dan was there to help it. What a beautiful picture of what we're supposed to do as Christians. So as we close, before we go into a time of confession and the Lord's Supper, I challenge you. I challenge you to look into your own life and ask yourself, how tethered am I? Or do I often just rather reach out when I'm in trouble? I challenge you to say, how often do I dive straight in and submit first? Or do I wait till I see the fruit of my labor? How often do we come and say, okay, well, someone asks, I'm ready to go, but are we even living a life? they'll ask about. These are the challenges. I pray that as we come here today, we don't leave untethered. I pray we don't do that. If you guys will bow your heads with me, I'll pray as we begin a time of confession.